And now, from the Room 111 Studios, it's the Retired Teacher Coach Podcast with James Sternovan. What up, listener? And welcome back to the Retired Teacher Coach Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. When it came to creating an episode on entrepreneurship, as in starting your own business, as in entrepreneurship for retired educators, I knew exactly whom I had to talk to. Steve Comstock was a public educator for over 30 years. For most of those 30 years, he was a head basketball coach. In retirement, Steve mobilized the diverse and extensive skill set that he cultivated in his years in education to become a successful entrepreneur. And this last statement teases the problem for this episode and for many retired educators. Our valuable skill sets, the ones we developed as teachers, go underutilized in retirement. Now, some listeners may be thinking that they have zero interest in becoming an entrepreneur and be inclined to stop listening to this episode. Not so fast. (laughs) I would have absolutely fallen into that category just nine months ago. And yet here I am, not even a year after holding such a disposition, running my own business. How in the world did this happen? (laughs) Steve went through a similar discovery journey. Be open-minded while you listen to this fascinating guy. Be mindful of your thoughts during the episode and in its aftermath. A paradigm-shifting eureka moment may be just over the horizon. Maybe you'll start a business and maybe you won't, but I'm confident this interview will change your outlook. I help retired educators make awesome health and lifestyle choices. My name is James Sturdivant. I taught high school for 34 years. I'm over 60. I'm in great shape and I feel fantastic. I would love for you to take my coaching on a free 21-day test drive. Just navigate over to the retiredteachercoach.com and sign up. It's time for you to reclaim your vitality. So here we are in the Room 111 uh, studios, and I'm talking to an old friend. His name is Steve Comstock. Say hello, Steve. Hello. (laughs) And we have... Uh, 36 degrees and partly cloudy in Columbus, Ohio, but we got some snow coming in tomorrow. Steve's laughing right now because he is in, where in Florida are you? I'm in Venice, Florida, and it's 76 degrees right now this morning and headed up to about 82. Wow, you better have your shorts on today. Oh, I do. I'm ready. (laughs) We're going to the beach today. (laughs) Well, that water's got to be kind of cold, isn't it? Uh, it's a little bit cold, but you get, there's people swimming in it. You get used to it quickly. It's funny that, uh, the people you see down here in Venice, you know, they're full-time Floridians because when it gets down to 60 or 58, they have long pants on, uh, scarves, socks, gloves. And, uh, you know, we're out in shorts and t-shirt because we're from Ohio. It's Heck yes, cold. you do. And, and you're still kind of an Ohio guy, right? Oh, absolutely. I'm in Ohio much more than Florida. Oh, how! but this is a great time of year to be in Florida. This is an awful time of year to be in Ohio. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it is rough. I, I have friends who told me how cold it was the last couple of days. So. Well, Steve Comstock, you'll appreciate this story. I talked to Steve yesterday, and I said I might be a little late 
My wife had a foot surgery, and so I, oh. I'm taking her to school. And so I had to drive her to school on a bleak Tuesday morning in January and watch mm-hmm. all these teachers and students file in with their with their shoulders hunched. I bet that doesn't sound appealing to you, does it? Oh, I remember those days well. <laughs> with, uh, you know, be there and answer the bell at seven fifty in the morning and stuff. It's and it's Tuesday, so you you would have had a basketball game to get ready for. Oh yeah, absolutely. Probably Tuesday, Friday games, you know. So okay, so here we go, Mister Comstock. I'm going to lay some things on you that are going to make you blush. All right. Well, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> and, and we're on a podcast right now, but I guarantee you that he's blushing virtually. <laughs> Okay, sir, you are the epitome of a masculine guy. I mean, you are an alpha male to the <laughs> T. I mean, but I mean that in all the best ways. There's no toxic max masculinity here. This guy is an incredibly humble guy. He's very self-deprecating, but he is he is the guy that you want your son to grow into. I mean, he is that kind of guy. Uh, and that's the way everyone feels, Mr. Comstock. I yeah. mean, you, you are just a class act. And so that's why this in quest, that this question I'm going to ask you is probably darned impossible for you. <laughs> I, I don't know, but I can tell you, you're very kind to me this morning. <laughs> well, well, you're not the kind of guy to promote yourself at all. And here yeah. I am, I'm going to ask you this ridiculous question. About how you would describe yourself on a dating app. Well, I tell you what, uh, I grew up in as simple a lifestyle as possible. I grew up on a farm outside of Marion, Ohio, and life was uh, about as simple and easy as can be. And so I think that's part of my background. Though. There's no pretenses to me. and None. Uh, just simple farm life growing up. I had five sisters, no brothers, so it was very difficult for me to grow up. I always kid my sisters about that. But uh, it was just a very, you know, a great way to grow up in that country. I mean, I had no worries in the world. And I think the one thing that probably changed my life was when I was 18 years old, I was a high school football and basketball player. Those were my two passions. Um, I was a quarterback on the football team and I was a point guard in the basketball team. And my senior year, I kind of decided I was going to go to Audubon to play basketball. And uh, on April 26, 1975, I'll never forget the date, um, I was working on my dad's grain elevator. I was on top of a grain bin and uh, I had a long iron pole in my hand. I was trying to create a vibration on the pole just to get some grain to fall off the um, grain bin roof. Mm-hmm. and high-voltage electricity, 7,200 volts, went through that pole and through my body. It entered my right hand, went through my chest, and exit through my legs. And uh, I was very fortunate to survive the accident. I probably should never have been able to do it. I had uh, serious injuries. I had uh, third-degree burns, required skin grafts, um, collapsed lung. Uh, I was in the hospital for three or four months. And when electricity, high voltage electricity goes through your body, it kind of burns you inside out. So it burns your arteries and veins wow. uh, first. And so the arteries and veins on the inside of my arm were burnt and required the amputation of my right hand. So when I was 18, I went from not a worry in the world, really, to uh, all of a sudden I was fighting for my life. 
Mm. And uh, I remember I was 175 pounds when I went into the hospital. And when I came out in July, that was April. And when I came out in July, I was like 105 pounds. So I was oh, like a, my gosh. I was like a skeleton with skin. You know, it was. Uh, and and it tell was, them how tall you are. I'm six foot two. So that was just, I was a skeleton. You know, I had no weight on me whatsoever. And that's, you know, I had six or seven major surgeries and, you know, just a long time in the hospital there. So it just, you know, took a toll. But luckily I lived through it. I had a couple things going my way. I was young. I was athletic. Um, it had rained the day before. So I had rubber boots on. I was only afraid when I went up on top of the grain elevator, I was only on a grain bin. I was only afraid of falling off. So yeah. I had tied a rope around my waist to the top of the bin so I wouldn't fall. And the electricity, the shock of the electricity going through me knocked me out. And so luckily that I tied myself there, I didn't fall off the roof. Yeah, you saved and yourself. I did come up. Um, I did awake when they were lowering me off the squad. The emergency squad was lowering me off the grain bin. And that's the first I woke up at that point and stuff. But um, it was a traumatic, traumatic accident to the point where, you know, I, and like I mentioned, I never had a thought in the world. I was so easy to grow up and had a very, quote, normal life. And that was in April. And I started school at Otterbein uh, that year in uh, the fall term. And all the adjustments of trying to go from right-handed to left-handed with everything I did and just trying to fit in with a, you know, a prosthesis that I was wearing and stuff. You know, I was uh, in, I remember I was in King Hall and I would wait till everybody else in the whole King Hall had showered and gone to bed and stuff. Yeah. And then I would get up and do my showering and do those kind of things. Cause I didn't want anybody to see me. I was just, my self-concept was hurt and all those kind yeah. of things. But, um, so it was just kind of a, a thing. Now, after 40-some years of that, I, I don't even think about it on a day-to-day -day basis. It's kind of like wearing glasses or a hearing aid or something. My hand goes on first thing in the morning. I never give it a thought unless I'm talking about it or doing something with it or something. So, so you're, part, of, part of my life. You're used to making adjustments. That was a massive adjustment. Yeah, now, yeah it really was. Now, really. now there, was, there was a point, there was a transition point for you where you – started being yourself again yeah, talk about it, talk about that it, it took time and it was a i'm not going to kid you that it was a fast process it was a very slow process it took a lot of time and i think the fact that i was around a lot of people and it, i had such great encouragement and stuff i think this is probably a good time my, my best friend is my wife and she was a constant supporter and mm -hmm advocate for me. And I, I mean, I would never made it through Otterbein College, let alone the next 40 years of teaching and coaching and doing all that. Um, so then I think I had a lot of things in my favor. My family was a strong uh, support system to me. I had, I met a lot of teachers along the way and friends that, uh, you know, just went out of their way to help me and give me a lot of help. So uh, you know, I was fortunate. I was very fortunate. You know, it had to be quite a sense of relief the first time your lovely wife, Sharon, saw you after this accident and you knew that she didn't flinch. You knew that she uh, was going to be there. Yeah, uh, she didn't flinch at all. She never left the uh, my hospital bed there. She was there every day. And yeah. um, it's just, you know, I could never have done anything in my life, you know, that I have done with her. She has just been a, she's a kindergarten teacher by heart and she's raised three boys and I think she were on nine grandchildren. So she is a wonderful, wonderful woman that to this day uh, helps me every day of my life. And uh, You know something about Steve, 
that uh, that, that always amazed me about you is uh, you would be exactly the same person if you had a right arm. Yeah. You, I you, think so. You, you think would be that. exactly the same person. Now, let me say, let me follow this up with your left hand could do some damage. I mean, th- this guy's left <laughs> arm is like bionic. I mean, yeah. you, you, you shake hands with him. He shakes hands overhand with his left hand. And, and like, you know, you, you better be ready. <laughs> I've never thought about that. I, I, do, uh, I do a lot of stuff with my left hand, so it probably is a little stronger than Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, and, and you might remember this. We had a young woman at our school who got into a car accident and I believe had to have her right hand amputated. Do you remember yes. that? Yeah, I remember that. And at that time, and I cannot recall her first name. Uh-huh. I don't either. But they uh, called me and uh, somebody called me in our family and they wanted me to talk to her. And I met her at Easton and we went out for lunch and had a good talk. And unfortunately I've kind of lost contact with her. That's interesting. But, uh, she seemed like, you know, for as tough as it is when you're 17 or 18 to have something that traumatic, she seemed like she was going to be okay. I mean, That's she had good. a positive outlook on life. And, you know, I think it's just like anything. I mean, you can sit around and, and cry about it and be upset and feel how the world gave you a short change or something, or you just mm-hmm. get up and take care of business and I think it's easier to just get up and do do what you're supposed to do. And maybe that farm life background of, you know, you don't have, I remember I told my dad in the seventies when I was starting high school football, that the coach wanted me to uh, come in the weight room and start lifting weights. And my dad looked at me and said, you see that rock over there? I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, you just start lifting it up and down until I tell you to stop. And that'll be the same as the weight room. So oh, there was geez. a lot of excuses there growing up. So I think that's kind of part of my background too. You just do what you have to do. Hey, what's our connection? Explain to the audience. Well, I tell you what, our connection's been years in the making. Years. When I first came to Big Walnut, the first person I met was Penny Sturdivant. She was on my interview uh, council and, and worked on the interview and stuff. Yeah. And uh, as soon as I got the job, I told Penny that you know I wanted to move in the school district and stuff. And I'll never forget. She, you and Penny said, hey. Uh, why don't you guys come over and look at our house? Your house is currently for sale. Are you getting ready to go to sale? Oh, wow. And I, I can't believe it. You just said, uh, hey, we're leaving unlocked. And just go over and take a look. And yeah. we did. It didn't work out in the long run. But I'll never forget that trust and friendship that you and Penny showed I right off. I think it was laziness. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it was very kind. Very kind. We knew yeah. we were in good hands there. But. Uh, I had an at-risk tutoring job and uh, had not done it before, so I worked very closely with Penny as far as, um, you know, students that needed special help and tutoring and grades and the old proficiency tests that we used to have back in the day and stuff, and uh, so I worked hand-in-hand with Penny very closely. Mm-hmm. Of course, you and I were, um, you know, co-teachers for, I think it was 14 years in yeah, social studies, and I was in the uh, at-risk tutor position. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be in Maria's, some of her science classroom. That's right. That's my daughter. Yeah. Yep. New daughter. And I also, um, with David, I was his varsity basketball coach. That's right. Middle school and stuff. And I had the opportunity to coach him in high school basketball and the thrill of my life. So listen, man, your friends, uh, Steve Comstock is a surrogate father to both of my (laughs) offspring. They just, they just, Worship the guy. Uh, and and here's the thing I want to say about Steve, and this is important. Sometimes 
and, and this is unfair because it's it I think it's more the exception than the rule, but sometimes coaches get a bad rap for not being serious about teaching, and that was never, never the case with, with Steve Comstock. Now, I really am so anxious to get into our topic, but I want to ask you just quickly, where did you teach, uh, okay. or what did you teach, and when did you retire? I started my teaching career at Gahanna Lincoln High School. I spent five years there as a middle school health teacher. Right. Uh, from there, and I was a middle school basketball coach the first five years. Okay. And burning desire to be, always had a burning desire to be the varsity head coach. And so I went from the giant school of Gahanna Lincoln to a very small school called North Union High okay. School. Okay, yeah. Be the varsity basketball coach for 12 years, and I taught science uh, during the 12 years there at North Union. I had a chance to start raising my family there in Richwood, Ohio. It was fun, fun times and so <laughs> forth. And, um, as you know, coaching changes and stuff. And I had the opportunity to go to Buckeye Valley high school. Right. And I was the head basketball coach there for three years and taught, uh, again, in middle school science classes. Uh, after three years, uh, immediately had the opportunity to, uh, jump to big walnut high school. Right. Where I, where and, uh, my wife and I yeah, taught. Absolutely. Right there yeah. at big walnut high school. And that was a great opportunity because my son, Joe, my middle son, Joe, uh-huh. He liked to come uh, competing in the, I think it was the MOEC at the time with the county schools of Buckeye Valley was at that time in with county schools and so forth. But because of his AAU background, when he heard that the Big Walnut job was open and he was, you know, the OCC was a member of Big Walnut was a member of that OCC. Boy, he loved this, the sound of that. And I did too. I thought it was a great challenge and a lot of fun. And uh, so I hooked up with Big Walnut at that point, and I taught at Big Walnut for 14 years, mostly wow. at the at-risk tutor position. I, I think I may have had several other title, job titles or something, but mainly it was that. Um, great time. I, when I look back at all my schools, I think I spent the most time at Big Walnut, had great friendships, students, uh, mm-hmm. friends, and it, it was just a fabulous time in my life. So I really appreciated my time there. And I was a varsity basketball coach. And then I ended up my very last, I don't know, seven, eight years. I don't know how long I was at, at my alma mater. River that's Valley. crazy. That's and crazy. That's crazy. Right so I ended up where I started. So. Hey, hey, listen, that's, so you were a lot of places. You went through a lot of transitions in, in yeah. those years in basketball. And we're going to get into that. But now, what year did you retire? I think it was, uh, I retired from teaching. Oh, man, I think it was probably 2014. Okay, okay. So it's been seven, eight years. Yes, it has. All right, so describe your transition. So you didn't go hang out on a beach in Florida. You were busy. Bam, right out of the chutes. Talk about that. Well, right out of the chute, the very first thing I had was kind of an unusual situation. It wasn't kind of my choice job type thing, but it was something my family needed. And my dad was close to 80. And he ran three large grain elevators and his farm as well. And he was at a point in his life where he needed help because he was going through the transition of closing and selling the grain elevators, which was going to take some time. And so for three years, I worked at a grain, my dad's grain elevator and um, did a variety of things. But it was a small business. So the outside work, you know, the grain, the shoveling, the cleanup, those kind of things came easy. Uh, the thing that was difficult was, um, you know, working with the numbers, the Chicago Board of Trade, where farmers would want to sell, you know, maybe thousands of bushels of grain, and you had to price it. 
so if you priced it a little bit high, it might be good, but the farmer may not like that and may not bring his grain back to the elevator. And if you priced it low, you end up losing money for the wow. So you didn't want to do that. So that was nerve wracking. I, wow. I remember those days. I was kind of hoping that the phone would not ring. Yes. Because I was just not really, I didn't have the background for that. And well, yeah. hold on, hold on, Steve. I want to yeah. ask you a question here because did you know this was coming in your last few years of teaching? We, my dad and I had kind of talked about it, but it was no firm plans. And after 34 years in the classroom, I remember we met at Bob Evans. And he said, hey, I know you need one more year to get to the full 35, but I really, really need you right away. Did he pick so up the check? Yeah, yeah. He hooked me up. I passed the job interview. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I passed the job interview and started right away. And it was I had never done anything like it. I mean, oh, I've okay, done okay. Up the outside stuff, but I've never done the office type stuff. Let me ask you this. Did you do this because you were excited about doing this or out of a sense of an obligation? It was absolutely a sense of obligation. It was not my long-term uh, hope and dream. And mainly, even when I grew up on the farm, uh, I had uh, a lot of allergies. And so the grain elevator with dust and those kind of things had never really, – I never thought of that as a possibility because I didn't think I'd be able to manage the allergies and stuff. But at this point in my time, my dad really needed help. And I felt like, hey, it's a good opportunity to see if I can step in and, and do things. Was this the uh, same grain elevator where you had yep. your accident? Absolutely. Uh, he had he had three grain elevators, and one of the three is where I had my accident was in Caledonia, Ohio. Um, but yeah, it was just it was something that needed done, and I you know I said you know hey I I can do it. I can get in there and roll my sleeves up and help. And so it went from teaching career of thirty four years to all of a sudden it was uh, a bit a small business where you're trying to please clients, our farmers, and keep them happy and talk to them when they came into the office and. The, the biggest part was the, the pricing of the grain. And, you know, because if you make a little mistake, it could cost you a lot of money fast. Did you make some mistakes? Well, I probably did along the way, but I was so cautious, you know, very, very cautious. And, okay. Uh, I know I remember the Chicago Board of Trade would close at 2 or 2.30, and then that locked the price in for the next, you know, till the next morning when it opened. Man, that- and I loved, I loved that time because then you didn't have to make quick decisions. But when the Chicago Board of Trade was open, then obviously you had to, uh, you know, make some quick adjustments okay. when, when people called. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question right now that I think is perfect for our conversation. So you were a high school basketball coach. Yes, that, that's a damn stressful job. <laughs> it can be. Now, now let's let's take a big one in high school when you were teaching there had roughly a thousand kids, so 500 of them are boys, and five of those 500, only five can be on the floor at one time. Yeah. So that means that there's students that you probably really liked that you had to say, no, I'm sorry, you can't be on our team. That also meant that you had students, uh, student athletes on your bench that didn't get to play as much as they wanted to play. Yeah. That also meant that you had parents probably 10 yards behind you at the games glaring at you. Oh, yes. <laughs> you, you, as a basketball coach, probably – obtained a lot of skills that then helped you with persnickety farmers. And there's a few of those that would call up and complain about uh, your prices. Correct. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, you don't realize it at the time, but when you do teach and coach for that many years, you run into a lot of problems. And, uh, and I think that the biggest thing probably, and I should, this may be a good time to mention it. 
I think to have success in coaching basketball as well as teaching, it's about relationships Mm -hmm. and to be able to have a good relationship with a wide variety of people. And, and I think that's something that has really served me well to this day. And the fact that I feel confident, whether I'm talking to a young person, an older person, uh, an aggressive person or passive, um, male or female, I, I feel comfortable in, in almost all my relationships. You and, do a great uh, job at that. You, you do have a skill of putting people at ease in stressful situations. Yeah, I think that, that, that is a direct lesson from basketball. Okay. You know, it's a stressful environment when everybody's there. It's a packed gym. Remember the old, uh-huh. I, I don't know if you ever saw a uh, varsity basketball game in the, what is the old, old big one in high school, which is now like, yeah. I think a middle school or something like that. But it only held a couple hundred people. But when you put them on the stage and filled every seat, that place was the loudest environment I remember. Oh, listen, um, listen. I think that this is a really valuable uh, riff we're on right now because even if you weren't a basketball coach, you probably dealt with aggravated parents as a former educator. I mean, you, you you deal with kids that are hard to cope with, that are that are angry in class, that are uh, insubordinate. I mean, these are great skills, and it sounds like you really utilized that background at that grain elevator. It, it really did, and not only at the grain elevator, but shortly after the grain elevator, my the thing that I did, I did the grain elevator job out of more of a necessity. Well, hey, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this transition. Hold on to that thought, okay? Okay. Now, now see, and this leads right into my next question. So you were at the Grain Elevator for how long? Uh, on three years. Okay, and that's three years. And, and, and that was, that was the sense of an obligation, yeah. look, closing up shop, okay? Yeah, my dad was having some major health problems. He, had, he was in um, the Dodd Hospital there. Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me, not Dodd, but he was in the Hart Hospital, Frank Hart uh, Frank Ross Heart Hospital at Ohio State for a couple months. He had open heart surgery and then a heart re- valve replacement and all kinds of things like that. So he really needed the help, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was good good thing. So, so you you sold that business, correct? Right, absolutely. Okay. okay, so you went from being an educator to something you did out of a sense of a obligation that was pretty stressful, where you utilized a lot of your skills from uh, that, that you evolved in education. And then you made this transition. So describe what you do now and describe that transition, why you did it, and, and what well, you're doing. Uh, very clearly, I will never forget it. Um, it was about January, I think, when we closed up uh, the last grain elevator in, in our solar farms and everything was done. And at that point in time, um, I looked up and I, I, I had retired from coaching as well at that point. And so there was about six weeks, 10 weeks where I was absolutely doing nothing. I'd get up in the morning. <laughs> My wife was a kindergarten teacher and at the point and she was still going to school uh-huh. and she would leave early in the morning uh-huh. and I'd be by myself and I have nothing on my to-do list for the first time in 40 years, you know? Yeah. So it was very unusual and I, and I loved it for about <laughs> four to six weeks. And then it I was waiting tough. for a butt. <laughs> Yeah, and it became torture. It was like, oh, my gosh, what can I do today? There's only so many TV programs you can watch. And I loved it. And then it got to the point where, oh, my gosh, it's driving me crazy. I have got to find something to do. Uh And um, so in the selling of the grain farms and the grain elevators and those kind of things, I worked closely with a real estate agent from Lima. And uh, 
and kind of said, man, you know, I've always thought about being in real estate, you know, for a lot of years. And so Sharon and I one time went to a class and just it was kind of like an orientation class to talk about real estate and sales. And um, I went there and thought, man, I think I want to give it a shot. And it was a little bit stressful because I knew you had to take classes and then you had to pass the state test and the national test. And I was worried about those things. Sure. And I'd never really sold real estate or done anything like that. I've been, a, you know, around the outside of it a little bit, but I got through my classes, passed my test and uh, hooked up with Coldwell Banker Realty. And um, it, it has been uh, a thing that I've never regretted. I've enjoyed awesome. all of it. It's very, very different from teaching. Um, and the one part that I kind of knew that I would like is that it's not that rigid schedule where you have to be there okay. at 7.50 okay. in the morning and the bell rings, you got to be somewhere else and stuff like that. I love Every it. day in real estate is different. So some days I'm all paperwork. Other days I'm showing houses and it's just anything you can imagine in between. Hold on. We're, we're going to really uh, dive into what a lot of things you just said there. But first I want to, I want every listener and Steve, I want you to think about the unique position that we are in as educators, as retired educators. Okay. Steve and I were in the state teacher's retirement system for the state of Ohio, which is a good one. It's a, it, as far as states go, it's a good one. Sure. And so we have this income that we earned over a long teaching career. And it was funny because, and I bet you have experienced this, there were times that some of my friends in the private sector would give me a hard time about how generous my pension system is. And I thought to myself, you know, hey, we all make choices. You know, for years, you made a lot of money, you know, for doing something that in the grand scheme of things doesn't seem incredibly important. Yeah, sure. but, but, you know, now I'm, you know, reaping the rewards from putting in all those years in, in education. So back off, you know, I mean, just just let me have my moment here. <laughs> and but what I thought about that is we are in a unique position. And listeners, if you're a retired educator, you're in this unique position to go out and try something low stakes. I mean, yeah. Steve Comstock, if you would have gone out as a realtor and it didn't work, you know, so what? You, try something you're else. Nothing. You're not going to starve. You're out nothing. Yeah. Awesome. I, I think. That has been a key. That's a great point, Jim. And that was a key to me is that I knew that um, if I didn't like it, if it didn't work out, if it didn't work out, if I wasn't uh, having success and stuff, I could just get out of it. And it wasn't like it wasn't my main job. It wasn't my sort main source of income by any chance. And it allowed me to start kind of stress free because there are a lot of real estate agents that their only source, they don't have that uh, retirement and uh, it's stressful for them because they've got to have that next sale and they've got to make money. Yeah, and I, and I think that's kind of helped me because I've been able to take a real laid back approach with a lot of my clients. And oh yeah, I, I don't have to push them, you know, yes. into things that they may not be interested in. I think there's a lot of people that like that. They they like that laid back approach because they don't get the stress passed on to them. Oh, that's that's that's. I, that is accurate. <laughs> I can tell yeah, you as, sure. a, as a customer, that is accurate. Oh, for sure. I, I told I'm Steve sure. Comstock, we, you know, you might not realize this if you don't live in the state of Ohio, which, you know, many people don't, is that central Ohio is actually a very hot real estate market. And where mm -hmm. I live, the house that I live in, Steve knows about it. I told Steve yesterday that uh, he gets to sell it <laughs> when we when we move out of it. 
but he and I will both be dead. <laughs> and my wife will live here for 20 years after I yeah. die. Yeah, so, you have a gorgeous house. So he, he ain't going to get a chance. So. I mean, I, I'll give it to you if, if for something <laughs> something strange happens, but unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen. We're you have to move down here to Venice, Florida. It's really sunny and nice down here, and you have that twenty degree Columbus area. Hey, listen, man, that's that sounds beautiful. Now I'm going to give you a soapbox here because I just love this next riff we're going to go on. I mean, I have some fr- I have some ideas to throw into it too, but I want you to talk about the highs and lows of becoming an entrepreneur. You know how it's changed your life. You know what what you didn't expect, what you are thrilled by what you're uh, just, just, just start talking, Mr. Comstock. Well, real estate um, has a built-in situation of the highs and lows. When you talk about highs and lows, you really never know what's going to happen because you don't control everything. Yeah. You know, I may take a buyer out, that buyer's pre-approved, ready to roll. And, and they find the house that they finally say, yeah, this is what I want. You know, it would be so simple if you just said, okay, we'll make it work. And just like on the, some of those TV shows, well, yeah, we'll call and set yeah. up the thing and have it work. But it's, it doesn't quite work like that. No. So we write purchase offers all the time. And, and you kind of sit back for 24 hours or 12 hours, depending on how much time you gave them to decide. And sit on pins and needles with your client and wonder, are they going to accept it or counter it or reject us? And uh, in this market, this market is very difficult now because it is such a seller's market. The inventory we have in homes is so small that to get buyers in contract now, you really feel like you've done something special because right. there's so much competition. The houses are going, um, you know, way over list price and, and things like that. So um, you, you have a great feeling. It's a, it's a real high when you make that phone call and tell somebody, hey, you're in contract. And I've heard people pull over and stop their car and clap and the people in the car are <laughs> screaming and yelling. And, uh, but you also make that phone call where you have to say, Hey, we didn't get it. And, uh, you hear that down, that drop, you know, yeah. they had their hopes set up and, and it just kind of gets dashed. But, um, because of my teaching background, I, I kind of work with a lot of, uh, first time home buyers. And I just recently in my last sale was a condo out by Easton where I got a girl from uh, River Valley that I had met at River Valley High School, and she is now a nurse at uh, Riverside. Um, and she, we've looked probably since April or May and everywhere in central Ohio to find something. And because she's so young, uh, if somehow said, hey, we're calling for highest or best offers, it left us out immediately because we couldn't, she, didn't, wasn't, she hasn't built up any big reserve of money to pay the low appraisal. Yeah, it happened to come in as low appraisal. So it, it was hard for her and she had to be patient and kept working. When the market slowed down a little bit right around Thanksgiving, that opened the door for us to get our foot in the door. And we found a, a freestanding condo over by Easton that she loves. And I talked to her last night. And she's in that condo awesome. and she, she really loves it. So it was gr- the, that's a great, great feeling, you know, when you when you feel like somebody desperately needs to get in that house and you find it for them. That's such a wonderful feeling. Okay. The lows are obviously the other ones where they want that house just as bad. You can't, you know, you can't get them there. Now, let me ask you this. When you first started this, did you ever feel like, what the hell am I doing? I have no idea what I'm doing. What what have I got myself into? (laughs) Yeah, I, 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 you have to learn on the run. And I think one thing I taught, I remember from basketball is that 
I was always taught to, to watch the long-term successful coaches, you know, right, and right. Bobby Knight or Coach K at Duke and those kind of things, and pick one and study one program of somebody that's successful and watch every detail, watch what they do and watch the way they teach things and do things and try to model your basketball program after that. And so what I did was when I got into the real estate office, I went to the office every day so that I could start looking around for agents that I knew were top agents had been in the business for a long time. And I started watching the, the things that they were doing. And I hooked up with one specifically that I um, became a good friend of mine and uh, just kind of watched. And I, I had a hundred, he probably dreaded when he saw me coming for questions, but uh, <laughs> ask a lot of questions, you know, until you get it right. But um and in our real estate office, we get a lot of help. So I remember on the very first time I had a purchase offer to write, I just didn't know how to do it. I mean, I just couldn't get through it. And I went into the office. It was on Mother's Day, a Sunday on Mother's Day. Uh-huh. And there happened to be an agent in the office. And I didn't know her very well. But she said, yeah, and we've all been through that. Come on over and uh, we'll sit there. And I must have it must have taken me two hours to write that purchase offer. <laughs> and it was so kind of her to spend their, her Mother's Day helping me on that. And um, But it's a nice feeling because now I, I, I get a chance ever so often when somebody calls me and says, hey, I've never written an offer. I don't even know what I'm doing. Can you please help me? I'm sure you help them. You'd help me anyway, man. You're that kind of guy. It's just fun. It's fun. Now, now you mentioned something, and I interrupted you earlier, but you talked about the freedom. The freedom. And, and Mr. Comstock, I'm I'm doing the same thing right now. Uh, You know, it's kind of like your purchasing agreement thing. I mean, it seems like I get up every day and I have to figure something new out, which I'm sure you went through, uh, which sometimes gets old. But it is so nice to just do what you want when you want. I I can't tell you how nice that is. Well, I think the thing that really teachers really have that uh, feeling for is that it's not only, hey, you go to work from 8 to Uh 5, but when you get to work at 8 o'clock, when that bell rings at 8.52 – that means you got to get up out of your, your your arena of whatever you're doing there. And a lot of times I moved classrooms and I had to be somewhere else in three minutes. No kidding. Four minutes didn't cut it. Needed to be there in three. Forget it. Forget it. If you have to go to the bathroom, it's just going oh to have to wait. Oh my gosh, that wasn't a factor. I it's mean, just going to have to wait. I'm sorry. I said it's just going to have to wait. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, as teaching is difficult in the fact that you every time that schedule changes you got to be doing something else change what you're teaching change where you're at what you're doing and uh that is, that is difficult when you do it five days a week i mean monday through friday and you do it you know the entire school year and you do it for 35 34 35 years like you and i did yeah. uh that's really something and so the freedom of yes i have a job and i have things to do and i have appointments or conferences or things like that but I, I don't have a schedule where every day in real yeah. estate that I have to be doing the same thing or be anywhere. Uh, if I feel like right now in real estate, and I think this is something great with real estate, if I want a day where Sharon and I want to say, hey, we're going out to explore something, do something, and um, you know, have fun and, and not show up at Coldwell Banker office, it's no problem. Yeah. I can get it done. As long as I have my phone in my pocket, I can still answer my emails and text. I'm here in Florida now, but I'm still doing real estate in Ohio. So, um, 
that that's a great blessing to get away yes. from that everyday grind. It really is. I have to tell you one story about that that you'll that you'll absolutely relate to. Uh, they made a big deal at our school about you can't leave the students in the classroom unattended. You know, which I get. You know, you're not yeah, supposed. You sure. can't do that. And but they were like making a, like a big deal out of it. <laughs> and for some some damn reason, I got a cup of coffee before I went to work one day, like an idiot. And halfway through first period, I'm thinking, I I don't have a choice. I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and they just made this big deal about not leaving the kids. And so I I fortunately had a classroom kind of close to the men's room. And I remember like kind of looking out the door and then just kind of like sneaking down there real fast and using the restroom and coming back. And on the way back, I thought, I am 50 years old. <laughs> sneaking to the bathroom. This is a ridiculous existence. <laughs> hey, uh, every hey, teacher understands that story, Jim. Mr. Comstock, you're a happy guy, aren't you? I tend to be, I think. I don't I mean, but, but right now with your with your new with your new life. I'm sorry? I said your new life is a really rewarding, happy life, isn't it? Yeah, I, I do. I, I don't really spend a lot of time worrying about things. I've always, of course, been that way. I kind of kid my wife. She worries about every detail and all the different mm-hmm. things, little things. I don't tend to worry about them, but maybe that's why we're such good, uh, have such good marriage and partnership. I'm gonna, but I just, uh, I don't feel the stress. You know, okay, well, and, and I'm going to ask you. Sometimes when you coach high school basketball games, you do anything else, you don't feel the stress. But Yeah. So, so I'm going to ask you one more question. If you had not taken that leap and become a realtor, your life would be not nearly as rich, would it? No, it really wouldn't. I, w- I would be miserable in a lot of ways until you find that one thing. And I think we talked about you know, what advice would I give to somebody retired? And that I'm getting is, ready to ask you. Go for it. Uh, I think that advice is simply, you don't have a lot to lose. Just get out and try. You don't have to make it like we've talked about. We have the state teacher retirement. Yeah. And so we just need a supplement. We need something. And more than the supplement I needed was something to be able to focus on and do. I don't think you can go from full on teaching for 34, 35 years to sitting down and doing nothing without becoming kind of isolated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, social relationships go down. Uh, you're not talking to very many people. I think because of that, your health kind of goes down. Yeah. And um, I've told kids for years this. This is my one little catchphrase that I always told every kid I could get to listen to me. And then I realized, hey, this is it also works after I, I taught myself. And that was, hey, marry your best friend and find a job doing something that you like that you get paid for. That's perfect. And I think that's been great. I married my best friend. That's worked out great. And the things I do for a paycheck are enjoyable to me. So, I mean, I think that's a great way to live your life. And whether you're for retired teachers, I just say, get out there and find something that you're interested in, put your foot in. You don't have a lot to lose. And I think it's going to be good for you. I think you'll, you'll be surprised all those years of teaching and relationships will come back to help you in in a lot of different ways. endeavors perfect and and steve i started writing books in 2014 and so i became an entrepreneur in 2014 started this retired teacher coach podcast and 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 my coaching and website uh just recently here but i will say this and i'll bet you'll i bet you'll have a similar story the first time i got a really good commission check on my books was totally unexpected it just showed up 
just showed up in my email box and all of a sudden I'm like, dang, man, I wasn't anticipating <laughs> that. This is freaking awesome because yeah. you coached basketball for years and were paid peanuts and you knew when it was coming and you got it every year and you're thinking all that work for this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So did you have like a, an experience like that where you made a big sale or something? You thought, wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah, it was. Uh, you do have that in real estate where, you know, the, ever so often and the friend I talked about, you know, he called it one of those game changers for in real estate is when you uh, you hit on both sides. You know, I remember I had a house for sale in Mount Vernon. Yeah. And, uh, Pleasant, I think it was Pleasant Street or something to that effect, but I had a house for sale and immediately I was doing an open house and a buyer came in and as soon as she opened the door, she started crying. And she was crying. As soon as she walked in, Sharon was right beside me. She remembers this. The lady was crying because she said, this is, this is the house I want. It's mm-hmm. close to my daughter. It's right where I want, and it's antique look of this house. This is what I want, and so I got both sides of that sale right away. I thought, "Wow, this is, this <laughs> this is, is easy. <laughs> this is easy." And uh, I, I was uh, found out later they don't all work that way. That's uh, for sure. But wasn't but, that wasn't uh, that a neat moment? Oh, it's a great feeling. Selling real estate to somebody that has to move, wants to move, is always good. They always get they check it off their box to do list. One of the most stressful things in their life that they want to do. But when you get in those situations where it's a real must that somebody has to buy or has to sell for a reason, they have to do it on a certain timeline and it works, it works for them. That's a real, that's a great, that's better than the paycheck coming because you know you did something very, very important. And I've met friends because of situations like that, that still send me pictures at Christmas with their kids and how things are going and stuff. So you've kind of met people that you never would have met before if you weren't in real estate. And it's something very rewarding. So I enjoy that part immensely. Well, I'll guarantee to put your uh, website on my episode page, Mr. Comstock, you are a good man. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate (laughs) it. I've enjoyed our friendship over the years and uh, still see you guys occasionally and David and Maria, not as much as I'd like to, but I was at Maria's wedding and stuff. So it's a lifetime relationship there and hope we can continue. Yes, sir. Take care, my friend. Take care, Jim. See, so we are at the What You Can Do About It section. Make a list of all the skills that you utilize daily in the classroom. Now take this list and circle the ones that you did well. Take this list and underline the ones that you enjoyed. Make a new list comprised of the skills that you circled and the skills that you underlined. Once you know what you're great at and what you enjoy doing, you can start searching for or creating opportunities. Here were my motivations to become the retired teacher coach. I thought back to uh, my teaching days and I knew that I loved to, and here's my list, work with students one-on-one, create lessons. Share my passions. Simplify complex ideas. Utilize technology. Produce virtual presentations. I realize that I miss doing these things. And becoming the retired teacher coach evolved from crafting this skills inventory. Please give this activity a try and be open about where your ideas could take you. Thanks for listening, and please visit us at theretiredteachercoach.com. Listen to every episode of the Retired Teacher Coach podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, 
Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Goodbye for now.